Why is it so important that we, as followers of Jesus, be characterized by unity with and love for one another? We're going to talk about that today and a lot more on BibleStudyPodcasts.org, starting now. Hello, everybody. Once again, thank you so much for downloading this message today. You are listening to BibleStudyPodcasts.org. Today is Monday, August the 15th of 2011. As always, I'm your host, Toby Logsdon. God bless you guys, and thank you so much again for being here today. I uh, hope you guys are enjoying your summer. I know some of you are uh, are going back to school right now. It's that time of year for some of you. Here in uh, Washington State, uh, I, I think my kids have a couple more weeks left. I think they have like three weeks left before they go back to school. But then they didn't get out until like the end of June. But, um, you know, th- this has been a, a different summer for uh, for all of us in, in our house. Uh, the weather here, if nothing else, is completely different from any place I've ever lived before. Uh, you know, we've had a couple days where we, you know, got into the into the 80s, if you can believe that, uh, while the rest of the nation has been, you know, hitting all these record temperatures and everything. Uh, it's been pretty cool up here. Uh, you know, there, our, our forecast for today, I believe, was for a high of 68 or something, 67, 68, with rain. Uh, and here we are, you know, in the middle of August, which is just kind of weird. Uh, you know, living in, in Las Vegas growing up, of course, uh, I'm used to it being about 110, 115 degrees uh, around this time of year. Uh, you, you know, when I was a kid, I remember going out in the middle of summer, in the middle of August, and playing soccer. Uh, yeah, in like 105, 110 degree temperatures. I remember, you know, we'd, we'd wait until it was maybe 5 o'clock. Uh, so it wasn't the hottest part of the day. But yeah, this is a little bit different than that. But uh, I can't complain because it's, you know, you can actually go outside here in the middle of summer, which is uh, definitely a very nice change. Uh, speaking of Washington, hopefully you guys are enjoying the sermons that I'm posting for you guys. Uh, we just started a new series this past week, uh, last week, we started with uh, we started with the introductory lesson for this series that we actually just wrapped up called "Focus on the Things That Matter," and we talked about the importance of theological. Uh, knowledge, knowing things about God and about our faith. And really, it's kind of a, a, a systematic theology, uh, but not quite so broad. I mean, uh, it can take years to cover everything in a four-volume set like Dr. Geisler wrote uh, of systematic theology. I, I just tried to touch on, you know, kind of the, the more important things, the uh, the bigger points, I guess you would say. But hopefully you guys will enjoy this series. Uh, it's a nine-part series. And so I'll be posting those every other week. And of course, last week I should have posted a Romans lesson. I'm sure you guys caught that. But my parents were in town. Um, I, I posted this on the, the fan page on Facebook. Uh, but yeah, my parents were in town. And so uh, putting a lesson up on Monday just kind of wasn't going to happen. So anyway, we're back to our Romans lessons today. If you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 14. We're going to cover verse 13 today. Let's go ahead and get started with a quick word of prayer. God, we just thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the instruction that we receive from your word, God. And we thank you that your word is totally relevant to every 
situation today. Even so many years after it was written, God, we thank you that there are things in your word that still apply so clearly to today. We thank you that your word is ever relevant in our age. God, we just pray that you'll teach us today to apply your word, to listen to you, and to walk with you more closely. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this past week, we, uh, we received, I believe, our third one-star rating on iTunes. Can you believe it? I, I can actually. I mean, there are always going to be people who um, who disagree, and that's okay. You know, we're going to talk about that today. Actually, we're going to talk about disagreements. But yeah, this last week we received our um, you know our third one star rating on iTunes from someone, and the review said that we or probably I, uh, but we were teaching the doctrine of man and that we should speak where the Bible speaks and be silent where the Bible is silent. Well, that's interesting, considering that I don't believe that the Bible is silent about anything, not on any topic. Rather, I believe that the Bible, the Word of God, is living and active, and it speaks on every issue imaginable. And I'll come back to that here in just a moment. Anyway, so I clicked on the the name of the person who had left the review, which allowed me to read other reviews that this person has left, hoping to find some clue as to what the issue was with which they so strongly disagreed. And it was interesting to find out that this person uh, apparently also has an issue uh, with women dancing. That's what they put on one of their other reviews. So that whole issue seems to be another one of those areas that the Bible doesn't explicitly deal with. Some people would say that the Bible is silent on that issue. And I'm not saying I do. I'm just saying some people would say that the Bible's silent on that issue. So it's very interesting indeed that this guy, um, I'm assuming it's a guy, uh, had an issue with that from another church. But here's how this whole issue ties into what we've been talking about over the course of the past uh, several lessons here in the 14th chapter of Romans. One Christ follower, hypothetically, believes that the Bible is silent on an issue, while another Christ follower believes that the Bible, hypothetically, speaks on every issue. Of course, that's not hypothetical at all. I'm talking about this guy and me. So what are we supposed to do? We disagree about whether the Bible speaks on everything. What are we supposed to do? Well, we're supposed to accept one another as brothers in the Lord, nonetheless, despite the fact that we might differ on our opinions pertaining to what is really not an essential issue. It's not an essential doctrinal issue. Now, if I were to take a guess, uh, kind of an educated guess based on this other review, but if I were to take a guess on what this person's issue with me might have been, I'd look at our most recent lessons. That's probably what he had downloaded. Uh, So I was kind of asking myself, have we talked about something that the Bible doesn't deal directly with? Yeah, we have actually. And it's an issue that actually recently was brought to me by someone who's been visiting our church here in Linwood. And that is the issue of what a person should wear in a church gathering. Now, the fact that the Bible doesn't deal directly with this issue doesn't mean that there aren't at least some implicit principles, some implicit teachings on the issue. Anytime the Bible doesn't speak 
explicitly in black and white language, it's safe to look for what it says implicitly. And if there's still nothing said, there are at least biblical principles which God has given us in his word to help us arrive at a biblically sound answer. So to answer the question about what a person should or or shouldn't wear in church, I think that two questions are actually helpful. First of all, the first question I'd ask is, is the person dressing the way that they do as a means of glorifying God and pleasing God, or is their intention to maybe draw attention to themselves, to glorify their body, or maybe to please other people? The biblical principle behind this question is that God judges the heart of a person, whereas people are inclined to judge a person based on the way they look, the outward appearance. The way that a person dresses in church is ultimately really between them and God, first and foremost, because it's important that a person's motives for anything and everything are pure before God. Now, Paul's told us in this chapter, chapter 14, that we shouldn't be judgmental of our brothers or sisters in Christ when it comes to differences of opinion in non-essential issues, that is, in issues that don't define or doctrines that don't define uh, Christianity. Why? Because the issue is whether or not a person is seeking to please God. They belong to him. They're serving him. He redeemed them with the blood of Jesus, and we didn't redeem them. So let him, let Jesus, let God be the judge. Now, there's a second principle that Paul wants to bring to our attention, however, one which will help us immensely when it comes to dealing with non-essential issues and disagreements. And so thus he continues, writing here in Romans chapter 14, verse 13, he writes, quote, Therefore, let us not judge one another any more, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. Now, as we all know, Anytime we see the word therefore at the beginning of a verse or passage, what do we do? We need to look back in the text and see what it's there for, right? Well, looking back and reflecting on the context of this verse, we see that Paul has told us not to be judgmental of our brothers and sisters in Christ since we're all going to have to stand before the Lord someday and give an account for our lives. That's called the Bema Seat Judgment, if you remember back a lesson or two. It's the place where we receive rewards for what we've done and maybe not done, uh, during our life on earth. So Paul's telling us that in light of that future reality, the reality that we will be standing before Jesus someday, giving an account for our lives, we should stop judging one another. Now, sadly, the statistics tell us that we have failed in this area. And maybe you could say we've failed miserably and without question. The Barner Research Group did some extensive research on people who were born between the years of 1965 and 2002. That's at least two generations, and one of them is actually the generation that I'm a part of. But this study revealed two statistics which might shock us, but probably won't shock us all that much. First of all, the first thing it revealed was that those uh, of those who responded to the survey, 84% who were not Christians knew at least one person who called themselves a Christian or a follower of Jesus. Secondly, and this is maybe the shocking part, the study revealed that a full 9 out of 10 people born in this era, born between 1965 and 2002, would say that the word judgmental accurately describes Christianity 
in this day and age. Now, before we go on from here, I, I do want to clarify or, or maybe put a little bit of a, uh, a clarification into this, and that is that uh, some of that might be deserved some of it might not be. Uh, you know, when, when people say that we're judgmental, that might be something based on just the way they see us, or it might be based on something that they've actually experienced. I mean, somebody could, uh, you know, write to a toothpaste company and saying, what are you trying to say? Are you, are you judging me and saying I'm, I've got bad breath? You know, so it, it's possible that we deserve that title of being judgmental, and it's possible that we don't deserve all of it. But I would say that we probably do deserve at least some of it. But friends, judgmental is a word that should never describe Christianity, at least not something that we should deserve. Biblically, we can't judge non-believers because it's impossible for non-believers, for someone who has never been spiritually renewed by putting their trust for salvation in Jesus, it's impossible for them to do anything that's good or pleasing to God. The best that we can do, apart from the power and persuasion of the leading of the Holy Spirit in our lives, is a filthy rag in God's eyes. And so thus the the unrepentant, the the people who have not been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, they don't have the ability to do anything that's pleasing to God. We need to remember that we have no right to be self-righteous in that sense, because if it wasn't for the work of Jesus and the indwelling presence and power of the Holy Spirit in us, in those of us who have put our trust in Jesus, we wouldn't be able to do good or to please God either. So we shouldn't be judging of non-believers. That's not what should characterize our lives. And we certainly shouldn't be judging uh, believers either, as Paul has stated for us here in black and white language. Now, that doesn't mean that there's not a place for church discipline. There's absolutely a place for that if a person's in sin and refuses to turn from it. But the goal of church discipline isn't to judge a person, rather it judges their actions. And the end goal of church discipline is ultimately sanctification, that is helping someone break away from the power and persuasion of sin in their life. And the other goal is restoration of fellowship with the community of believers. It also doesn't mean that we shouldn't judge the teachings or beliefs of one another. Of course, we want to judge all teachings by Scripture. We want to make sure that we're not budging on the essential doctrines of the faith. And so Paul says, Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but... I always want to look for that but, because when you see that, what follows usually, uh, what follows an instruction not to do something is an instruction to do something. There's a contrast here. Instead of doing this, do that. Don't do this, but do that. And in this case, instead of judging one another, determine or resolve not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in the way of a fellow believer. That's what Paul tells us. And so thus, the first principle when answering the question about things like church attire, you know, what a person should be wearing to church, is whether a person is striving to glorify and please God. The second principle is whether or not it's reasonable to think that we would or or could cause a brother or sister in Christ to stumble into sin. And I believe 
that the Bible doesn't address non-essential issues like this one for a really good reason. And that is, if you were to survey the various cultures around the world, you'd find that what's deemed to be acceptable attire in one culture is deemed unacceptable and maybe even provocative in another culture. So what will cause another person to stumble? Well, that varies from culture to culture and with some things even from person to person. So we should not only expect disagreements on non-essential issues, but maybe, at least to an extent, we should even welcome them. Now, if there's one thing that will almost undoubtedly cause a brother or sister in Christ to stumble, it's being wrongly judged. We're so emotionally delicate in that way. But I can personally attest to the kind of hurt, it, it's it's real hurt, that being wrongfully judged can cause. And I'm sure that we can all uh, attest to that fact to some extent or another. But there are two inherent dangers here that Paul is trying to avoid. Remember, he's addressing two groups of Christ followers, those who are weak in the faith and those who are strong. The weak in the faith run the risk of being uh, overly fearful and legalistic, whereas the strong in the faith run the risk of being careless as a result of their love for the freedom that we have in Christ. If someone who is overly legalistic takes sharp enough aim, they can shoot the stronger believer down in a heartbeat. But at the same time, someone who takes their freedom in Christ too far so as to sin runs the risk of drawing a weaker brother or sister in Christ into that same sin. So there's a danger coming from both sides here, a different danger coming from both sides. So Paul says to determine or resolve not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in the way of a fellow follower of Jesus. Now, at first glance, it might look like Paul's using those words interchangeably. The words obstacle and stumbling block, they appear to be somewhat similar. I mean, at least in our minds, we, we kind of picture maybe the same thing. However, we should note that these are actually two totally different words and two totally different concepts. A stumbling block is something that causes you to trip, and the result is, you know, a stubbed toe, which hurts, or a bruised leg, which hurts. Uh, you know, if you've ever seen someone running the hurdles in the Olympics or in a track and field event, you've probably seen someone, uh, you know, eat it. You know, they, they, they trip and they come crashing down after tripping over one of the hurdles. That's a stumbling block. Now, take that picture and imagine a follower of Jesus who's running strong in their faith when out of nowhere, a legalist steps in and says, now wait a minute, if, if you want to be a real athlete, you have to run the race with hurdles. See what I'm saying? That, that's, what, that's what a stumbling block is. The Greek word for obstacle, however, refers to a trap. Uh, and th this is kind of cool, kind of interesting. The, the word for obstacle is skandalon, which is the word from which we get the word scandal. Uh, when I first learned how to drive, one of the things that I decided that I was going to master was parallel parking. So I became really, really good at it. I probably could have done it with my eyes closed. I was so good at parallel parking. Yeah, I'm kind of kidding about the eyes closed thing. But, you know, you give me a space that's a foot or two longer than my car, and I could get the car in there, no problem. I, I still can. I'm, I'm pretty good at parallel parking. So when I went to take the test for a driver's license at 16 years old, I knew that I was just going to, you know, I was going to ace that part of the driving test. The parallel parking uh, part of the test, yeah, no problem. I probably would have 
aced it. But instead of having me park between two cars, the proctor of my test had me parallel park behind one of those orange cones. Not between two orange cones, just behind one orange cone. And bam, I hit it. I, I ran into this cone. I failed the test, and I, I couldn't believe it, but, you know, that's life sometimes. But the fact is that as a new driver, I really wasn't prepared for that orange cone. It was different from what I thought the test would be. Now, take that scenario and apply it to a new follower of Jesus who's maybe a little bit weak in their faith, and they're not prepared for everything that's going to come their way. They want to be good and pleasing to God. After all, that's why most people would become a Christian. So they want to be good and pleasing to God, but another follower of Jesus, hypothetically, someone who has been following Jesus for years, happens to be maybe having sex with his girlfriend. And so he says to this new believer, he says, oh, you know, I'm I'm covered by grace, so it's okay if I sin. I mean, you can quote the Bible and you can quote the law to me all you want, but I know that Jesus loves me no matter what. He's going to forgive me, so I'm just going to go ahead and do it. And so that new weak follower of Jesus has just had a trap set for them by the person who's abusing God's grace. And so Paul's addressing both sides here, the weak and the strong, the new and the old, and he's encouraging them to resolve not to do anything which might cause the other to sin by judging wrongly. Learning to walk by grace, friends, learning to walk by grace is not an easy thing to do. It's not an easy task. It's not something that anyone can master overnight. And some people spend their whole lives trying to find a balance between legalism and licentiousness, and they never find it. It's too hard. So they settle on one end or the other. They either become a legalist or they become uh, licentious. You know, they, they, they take advantage of God's grace. They, they go ahead and sin freely because they know that God will forgive them. And finding the place where we can rightfully enjoy our freedom in Christ, and we should enjoy our freedom in Christ, but finding that place where we can rightfully enjoy our freedom in Christ while at the same time exercising Christ-like self-control is where we want to find ourselves. We're going to see that Paul's about to tell us some principles. He's going to tell us how to do that through the remainder of chapter 14. The lesson for us here from this verse today, verse 13, however, is that while we're free to hold convictions on non-essential issues, in fact, I would encourage people to have convictions, we have to be careful not to let those convictions trip or trap other followers of Jesus. Let's pray. God, we just thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you have made uh, made us one with you, that you have accepted us as your own. We ask, God, that you would continue to work on us and make us function like a body, like the body that you've designed us to be. Lord Jesus, you are the head, we are the body. I pray that you would just teach us to be one, just like you prayed on the night that you were betrayed, the night before you died on the cross. You prayed, Lord Jesus, that we would be one. We pray, Lord, that you would teach us to do that, that we would be accepting of differences of opinion on non-essential issues. Help us to love one another, to welcome one another, and to give the world a testimony of love and unity rather than judgmentalism. We love you, Lord. Thank you so much for this time. I pray that you'll bless and protect this lesson. In 
Jesus' name. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today, and keep growing closer to Jesus. Longing to hear me speak, I am.